I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Ramble Meets is sponsored by Bet365. I'm Tom Jones, a senior principal of Populous, which is a global design company that specializes in the design of sports and entertainment buildings. Tom, thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Um, been very, very fascinated to have you in. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, why don't you start by telling us what a lead architect does when it comes to sports stadiums, specifically the, the Spurs Stadium, the Arsenal Stadium I know you worked on, and the Olympic Stadium. What does that role entail? Well, you can imagine projects of this scale, very, very large buildings, and it's impossible for one architect to uh, be responsible uh, for designing and developing the drawings for for all that building. So we tend to have to break down the buildings into different parts, things like the roof, the seating bowl, the facade, the interiors. And my role as the lead architect is really just to try and make sure all of those different bits of work are coordinated, that everybody's talking to each other, and also that we uh, coordinate with the rest of the design team, so the engineers and the other consultants that are working with us on the design of a project like a stadium. And, that, I mean, clearly it's a colossal job, and it's something, I believe, in, in terms of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which I suppose we'll talk about most closely because it's the most recent one and, and it's generating headlines as being perhaps the most advanced, if that's the right word, stadium in Europe or, or, or even the world. Hmm. But... It's clearly a huge project, and I, I read that you've been working on it as your sole project for seven years now. Mm. So it's you know by any measure, it's it's a huge thing. Yes. Um, I suppose my first question is where where do you even start? How do how do you even start? I mean, when when you break ground, I mean, how much has gone into it before that even happens? Well, a huge amount has gone into it before we we get to site, and um, you know, one of the challenges is to try and in a project of this scale is to try and be able to to break it down into different levels of detail because if you get too caught up in some of the you know, details like the doors and the ironmongery or the you know some of those sort of finer points of detail, you, you'll never really be able to make the big strategic decisions that you need at the start. So one of the challenges, I think, is, is just to try and um, try and talk to our clients and to the people we're working with to explain just the different levels of detail. So at concept design, we need a sort of general level of detail. As we move into scheme design, a little bit more detail. Then we move into detail design. We start looking at more specifically at the finishes and the furniture and the lighting and the other things that go into the building. And then ultimately, of course, the construction drawings, which is what the builder and the contractor requires to, to basically build the building. Um, and the thing, another thing that's quite fascinating about it is if you are you know, commissioned to design and then build a building, a public building, a large building, clearly that's one thing. But one thing that must always be at the back of your mind in terms of sports stadium, particularly football stadiums, mm. is one, 
oh God, I hope the fans are going to like it. Mm. And two, is it going to generate this atmosphere, which in a way can feel like quite an ephemeral thing, right? It can feel like one man's meat's another man's poison, you know, depending on where you're sat. And I know that in the case of Tottenham Hotspur, it's something that was front and centre, wasn't it, in what yeah. they wanted and what they desired when they, the stadium was unveiled. This idea that the big, is it the South Stand? Yeah, would be a big, kind of like a megaphone yeah. to, to amplify the sound. And, I, and I've, I've, I've seen games there, I've seen Champions League games there, I was there for the opening game. Is it, is it something that you were desperate and, and, dare I say, a little bit worried to get right? Yeah, it's a good point because, um, and I think it is, you know, sports stadia generally have a lot of public interest, but I think football stadia and particularly the home fans that 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 really see it as their home, um, you know, have a particular um, passion for what that building is going to be like. And you know, a stadium like White Hart Lane, which was um, rightly acknowledged to have a fantastic atmosphere, had all that history, heritage, the the famous matches, the wins. Uh, you know, the fans are when they're looking to move into the new stadium are obviously asking the question: Are we going to lose some of that heritage? Are we mm. going to lose that identity? And um, and I think if there's been a criticism of modern stadia um, in recent years, it it's sort of been that um, the sort of oval shaped stadium, which has sort of become almost like a generic design for more modern stadia around the world mm. almost like a bit of a template that that it lost some of the character of the older football stadium so when we were looking at Tottenham the, the club Daniel Levy the chairman was very very uh, clear that he wanted to get the best possible atmosphere in the stadium mm. and um, and they really wanted to develop uh, a uh, spaces and an environment within which the home fans would feel home and also feel really passionate to uh, about the club so we probably started with a seating bowl and looked at sort of the idea of the single tier stand, which really is a, a sort of throwback to some of the old English stadia. And obviously Dortmund has its uh, yellow wall. Did you go and visit Dortmund? Uh, some colleagues went to Dortmund yeah. to, to look at that. Uh, and, you know, we're just amazed at the sort yeah. of, you know, the, the wall of atmosphere that came out of there. So uh, um, so that single, the idea of the single tier stand was one of the key early uh, drivers in the design. Um, we then looked at giving each of the other stands a sort of character so that not uh, in the way that older stadia w- would have been built up over time, you know, West Stand, an East Stand, maybe a South Stand, then a North Stand. And it kind of gave that particular stadium an identity. We were trying to do the same with, with the new Tottenham Stadium. And um, then with the spaces within the stadium, we also wanted to try and create more sort of authentic football fan spaces. So with materials, with um, sort of uh, bars, um, with sort of spaces where the fans can gather communally before the game. And what's amazing to see is, you know, in the marketplace before a Tottenham mm. game, the singing, the chanting, it's almost like being in the stadium before you actually get into your seat. And that was what you were envisaging? Those, those were some of the hopes. And um, yeah. I think it's been great to see you know, a lot of feedback from the fans. And of course, we live in an age with social media where you get direct feedback from the fans. There's nothing filtered through media now. You see directly if a fan likes or doesn't like a space. And a lot of great comments about how it almost felt like coming home. Mm. And I think, you know, when we look back at the sort of response so far to the stadium, that's probably one of the most positive aspects that Tottenham fans feel like it's still coming, coming home. And the little touches that you've alluded to there, the sort of crushed up aggregate in the walkways from the old stadium and the replica of the cockroach yeah. stuff, is, was that, did that come from you or did that come from the club? A combination. I think it's fair to say that over the years, um, we've met very regularly with, with the club. And um, as a client, it's been incredible to see how much time they've actually committed to the design process. Mm. So Daniel personally, along with a couple of the other directors, you're meeting us every week, 
three hours, four hours, six hours, even eight hours a week, mm. just talking about design. And through that process, they've been very keen that we looked at possibilities of bringing some of the um, physical elements of White Hart Lane. So, for example, the shelf island bar in the new stadium has bricks from the shelf of the old stadium forming part of the wall. The cockerel on the roof is an exact replica of the 1903 cockerel, but scaled up, so it sits in the scale that's appropriate to the new stadium. Otherwise, it'd look a bit apologetic. Wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it probably wouldn't be quite quite the size. Uh, you know, the, the aggregate that was dug out of the ground for the foundations has been been sort of um, uh, used and polished into the new floors of the new stadium, so mm. you sort of feel like there's something of the earth that's in the stadium, mm. and even the, the sort of front of the dispensary building, which has been put into the Tottenham experience. So, an attempt to try and um, at least have some of the elements of the old stadium so that the fans have a few touch points marking the centre spot of, you know, when you walk into the south stand now, there's an area that shows you where the centre spot of old White Hart Lane was. Mm. Uh, when the landscaping gets done, they're going to mark out the penalty area, you know. Mm. So just so it gives the fans something to respond to when they come back to the stadium. So it's very, it sounds like it's very much a part of your thinking, whether it's the Spurs Stadium, the Emirates or the Olympic Stadium, whatever. It sounds like it's part of your thinking to, as a company and as a lead architect yourself, to acknowledge that this is actually more than a building. I know it sounds a bit cheesy, and, and a bit, yeah. as, as an architect who's there to do a job on a budget and on time, and we'll talk about time in a minute, <laughs> um, is, it, is it something you can afford to think about too much, or do you have to be sort of more dispassionate about it? Well, I think it's essential because I don't think a football club would, would, would move ahead with a design or sign off a design if they didn't feel that we had responded to, you know, their heritage, their fans, you know, the, the, the unique characteristics that, that apply to that club. And, you know, a club like Tottenham that was at White Hart Lane for over 100 years, I think felt particularly strongly that they wanted to remain on the site and, and as part of their local community. And so trying to sort of understand what that means both for the local people, but also particularly for the fans in terms of, um, um, I guess, that identity of what is it that they think about their particular club that makes it special to them? Is it is it the badge? Is it colours? Is it history? Is it famous dates? And actually, I think it's a bit of all of those things. Mm. And and our I guess our challenge is to try and sift through all of those sort of elements and trying to put them into interior spaces in a way that... Um, um, still is cohesive. Still, um, you know, doesn't feel overly messy, but but uh, but uh, but also gives them the room for growth in the future. So, I guess it's that combination of celebrating the past, but then looking ahead to the future. Is it a case that to 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 get to the stage you are now with the most recent thing you've worked on, you have to develop over time? a skill and an experience for these things. So the, some, of the, some of the stuff you'll pitch to, for example, Daniel Levy and Tottenham, uh, Tottenham Hotspur, and some of the stuff you'd have pitched to Arsenal when you, when you built the Emirates Stadium. Is it a case you get more ambitious as you go along through your career? Because there's improving technology, there's improving experience, you know what can and can't be achieved. And I suppose what I'm getting to is, at the moment, there's lots of talk that this this latest Tottenham Hotspur Stadium is the most advanced, as I've already said, you know, around. How long do you expect that to be the case for? Is there something you're working on next, something that you think will come along in the pipeline that's going to be even more advanced? And even and if so, I mean, I don't expect you to be specific, but if so, what can be done that's even better? Because I know the technology of the pitch at Spurs is interesting because it can slide out and you can slide up a uh, NFL. Yeah, the NFL pitch yeah, underneath. Which is amazing. I mean, I, I can't even... I've been there a few times and I can't even see how that's possible, but no. I'll I, I take your word for it. Um, <laughs> 10,000 tons of grass that uh, slides along on rails and has the AstroTurf pitch underneath. Yeah. So you must spend quite a lot of your time working out exactly what's physically possible then before you can 
respond to a brief. Yes, and and I think the you know the the um, approach to design really, if you're going to if you're going to be able to be innovative in what you do, is you have to have enough of an open mind to um, consider new and uh, new possibilities, things that perhaps you didn't think might be possible, but with enough of an idea of of, of the practicalities of how you might deliver it. So the sliding pitch is a is an interesting one. Tottenham were very keen to be able to host the NFL and they'd looked at other stadia where there's a struggle if you have um, NFL playing on the grass pitch and you try and play football the following week. So they wanted to make a pitch to the NFL to say, well, you can have a grass pitch for Tottenham. It slides away and you have an artificial pitch underneath for the NFL. It will always be perfect. Um, And we had done a project in uh, Phoenix with a sliding pitch that that moved in a a similar way. Mm. didn't have the second surface underneath and didn't have a stand that it had to go under. Is that for the Cardinals? Yes, that's right. It's the Cardinals stadium. Um, So when we then said, well, we've got a 17,500 seat stand, the engineers rightly looked at us and said, there is no way we can span 70 metres, you know, with a bridge structure for this pitch to slide underneath. We need at least two lines of columns. So then you get the scenario where you ask yourself, well, how can we have a sliding pitch that moves but also has to split into three with the two side pieces moving a metre to either side to then slide out and miss the columns? And that's then when you get into prototyping, going and finding um, you know, really creative engineers and, and, and uh, builders who, who, who we can then work with to, to turn that into reality. And, that, and that's what's happened? Yeah. And this and is the first time it's ever been done. It is. So, you know, the key thing really in that sense is the rail technology is not is not new, but how do you bring two pieces of pitch back together with a joint that doesn't have any issue yeah. of, of studs? So in that sense, the only way you can do it is with prototyping. So we did small scale prototypes, then built a full size mock up at the training ground, which Tottenham then used for probably six months to make sure that this new technology was going to work. Yeah. And then once that had been successfully tested, then they were able to commit to it in the new stadium. And and that's what makes it really exciting as a designer is when you are starting to push the boundaries, but you still have to go through a process of testing and demonstrating that something will work before a client's going to make the final investment. This is blank check stuff, isn't it? I'm not sure about blank checks, certainly big checks. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think um, one of the interesting things for, for with the Tottenham Stadium was really, you know, the ambition of the club. And um, we work on an, we, we can we have worked on a number of projects where you can come up with lots of amazing ideas, costs get put against them, and the client will say, you know, that's actually taking it a bit too far. That right. we, we don't have the ambition to stretch that far. And what's been interesting with Tottenham. And, and and almost having to suspend my uh, my sort of reality in in moments is there's almost been no idea that's been too big for them. They've constantly challenged us to to come back with new and new innovative ways of doing things, making it better. How can you know, Daniel's constantly been asking us, you know, what's best practice and how do we go beyond it? Mm. Um, and he's also then um, followed that up with with the instructions to actually deliver the work into the project. And so, do you, do you think um, that the ambition? outstripped the timescale in this case and that's why we had a delay and and, and what I, and obviously I don't want to haul you over the coals for that because that would be rude I don't think people have an understanding and I certainly don't of how common or maybe uncommon I don't know delays in projects of these size this size can be um I guess a touch point would be the HS2 thing or the crossrail cross stuff rail, yeah, yeah. Is, is it fairly common for this stuff to happen but it's just more emotionally fueled because it's it's football basically yes I mean I think historically um Major projects have often struggled to be delivered on time because they're just such a scale that if anything comes up and causes a problem, that it can really um, push things back. Um, we have had successful projects like the Emirates, like the Olympic Stadium that were delivered on time. And with Tottenham, really, 
the, the challenge was that because we were building on top of White Hart Lane, we, we could only build three, three quarters of the stadium initially while Tottenham was still playing at yeah. White Hart Lane. Mm-hmm. Then, obviously, they needed to relocate for a year while we demolished um, White Hart Lane. And the reason it was a year is because they were just concerned, I think, that the fans might feel a degree of disengagement. They certainly were concerned about results falling off on the pitch. So along with everything else that's been very ambitious on the project, they challenged the construction team to say, we only want to be away for 12 months or 14 months with a closed season. Yeah. Um, can we demolish White Hart Lane and build all of that second phase within that that period of time? And I guess, you know, they ultimately various things did come up with some of the systems testing that didn't quite work first time. And so that's unfortunately is then what led to, to the extension of the project. So is that a responsibility of a contractor that works for you guys? doing not doing it on time or whatever well as, as architects we're, we're generally responsible for monitoring you know is the contractor building the design to the drawings in terms yeah. of program the contractor is generally responsible for that so um that was there are uh, as much as we as i think architects can do any, anything you yeah, know, yeah. We, we can only really be responsible for the design so logistics of construction sequencing of works on site that that's all really with the with the contractor and and so that your I suppose your answer in short then would be that it's not uncommon for this size of project to have these kind of delays. That's true, and and um, I think also uh, what we've seen all the way through this project is that the club have really wanted to deliver the best quality stadium possible. So it's so, important to get it right. That's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah. And I, th- I think they felt that it was it was better to have us you know the extension to the, the to the project time, but to deliver the. the the stadium the best that it could be so that when fans actually came in they weren't saying well this is half finished or I can see they haven't finished that part of the concourse yeah. um, they wanted it to be complete so that when the fans actually came back in you know that they they would feel like they were coming to a completed project Okay after the break we're going to talk a bit more with Tom about um, the Spurs stadium the other stadiums he's worked on and maybe a bit about himself as well he's looking as he shifts un- uncomfortably in his seat uh, don't go anywhere Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. 
Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. Okay, welcome back to this episode of Ramble Meets, sponsored by Bet365. Tom Jones is still in situ. Um, Tom, I, if I could ask you a couple of questions about yourself, um, purely because anyone who has stood in a huge building, an impressive building, whether it be a football stadium or whatever, I think before we came on, I was talking to you a bit about Heathrow Terminal 5 and just how crazy, just the baggage hall at Terminal 5 is. Yeah. And maybe because I'm a bit of a nerd or I don't know, maybe other people have felt this way as well. You look around and you think, I mean, how is this even possible? I mean, how, how do you get from nothing to this huge building? And for your role in it as a lead architect, how did this journey all start for you? I mean, how did you get to the stage now where you are able to manage projects of this size in something, if you don't mind me saying a hugely impressive way, because the Olympic stadium, I was there, I was there for, for the Olympics. It was amazing. I've been to the Emirates. It's amazing. You know, how do, how do you, where do you start? I mean, presumably it's university, but where do you start and, yeah. and what do you do to get to where you are now? Well, the starting point for architecture for me was a, a school competition uh, to design a house for the year 2000. So that probably starts to date me and age okay. me yeah. so, uh, <laughs> back in the mid 80s when I was uh, doing that. And Sorry, uh, you're among friends here. <laughs> I, had a very, I had some excellent teachers, uh, design teachers who uh, really encouraged us to, to, to have a go at that. And I, I won the uh, Shropshire Star competition back up in Shropshire, good old Shropshire. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of got me on the, on the road to considering architecture and design. Um, I'm from a farming family, so I have no connection to architecture at all. But um, And then uh, through university and then uh, ultimately down to London. And uh, in the mid-90s when I um, graduated, it was the last big recession, so there weren't many um, opportunities uh, for architects. Um, so I ended up in a company that was doing small works projects in the Royal Parks. So, oh, brilliant. Uh, a toilet block in uh, Hyde Park at the Serpentine Gallery is my first ever building that got it, built. And you can still walk past that now and see <laughs> you it. Can, the little brick extension at the back. That's um, amazing. What a source of pride that must be. To, <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like much, but you've got to start somewhere, right? You do have to start yeah. somewhere. And then, you know, I guess I, I was um, moved companies a few times. I worked uh, on a company work that, that used to do theatres and office blocks and, um, and then moved to a small company because I think it's good as an architect, you get experience of working in a larger company than a smaller company where mm -hmm. you literally Actually, we're doing the mail, putting the postage on the uh, on the letters, mm. and then I got the opportunity to join Populous. Um, mm. And um, as somebody who loves architecture and I love sport as well, it just seemed like 
uh, you know, the perfect job. And um, at the time they were doing uh, the Emirates Stadium, the O2 Arena, Royal Ascot and Wembley, which is a pretty impressive. So these are, these guys are the go-to guys then, basically. So, <laughs> well, certainly as I was sitting in the interview, I thought there's, there's not a bad project here. So, yeah. uh, And I was lucky enough to join the, um, the Arsenal project um, in, in its construction phase. And um, we were very lucky on that project. We had a, an amazing contractor, Sir Robert McAlpine, uh, particularly a construction director, uh, a gentleman called Rolf Christensen, who um, had done the O2 Arena. And this was the sort of end of his career, very experienced. And it was fascinating to observe him as I watched, as I my responsibilities grew through the construction phase. I ended up being responsible for the delivering the project for the final 12 months. And just seeing how he handled himself, how he made it his responsibility to go and walk out on the building site every day. He didn't rely mm. on other people to give him feedback. He mm. actually went and saw it himself. But also how he handled the inevitable challenges. So on a, any project, kitchen extension or whatever. You're the studio, to, perhaps. <laughs> the, the, the recording studio. Yeah. There will be things that you, you can't imagine that will come up and cause a problem. Yeah. And the key thing is how you respond to that. So making sure that you deal with it, address it and move forward as opposed to getting caught up in a lot of uh, arguments and things that can frustrate the project. And it was, it was fascinating to watch him and see how he, as being re overly re overall responsible for the delivery of the Emirates Stadium, worked through that. And let's give Arsenal fans something to, 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 to listen into then. So what, what, what was particularly special for you about the Emirates Stadium? Well, I think it started with them as a club. Um, they were a fantastic client. Um, Danny Fitzman and Ken Fryer were our two particular clients. And um, they really encouraged us all the way through the project. They uh, looked after everybody on the project. Um, they demanded the very best from everybody. And, and that's a, a great challenge to have. Um, but they, uh, you know, they put a lot of their own personal time in coming through, checking things, looking at samples. I remember going up on, out on site at 10 o'clock at night with Ken Fryer, looking at floodlighting on the yeah. on the stadium, you know, a couple of months before uh, opening. And mm. I think any time you get a client, and Daniel's been the same at Tottenham, any time you, you get a client who invests themselves in it, so it, they, it really matters something to them. It's something that we feed off because then we, it can really matter to us as well. Yeah. And... and a question I've always wanted to ask, actually. You know, at the back of these stadiums, and Arsenal have definitely got it, Spurs have got it, I'm pretty sure one or two others have as well. There's like a wave effect mm. around the top of the seats. Yeah. What's, the, what's, the, what's, what's that for? So when we design seating bowls, we always look at viewing uh, distances and viewing angles. Yeah. So uh, there's a diagram that we draw that tries to make sure that nobody is too far from the pitch and also under our regulations we get a maximum angle of seat of 35 degrees is that what the spurs one is so spurs got up to 35 uh, generally 34 degrees is where we've been before i think the new camp's bigger than that it probably is and it's probably not legal under british yet okay, okay right okay but, uh, and and then you have the site so you have a fixed site area you have a client that says how many seats they want to get into a stadium the pitch is obviously the pitch and then you draw it's a sort of oval shaped diagram that really tells us where we've got to get everybody so that they're uh, close enough to the pitch not to feel too far away. Mm. And inevitably what it means is that if you filled those corners up so that they were level with the top of the north and west stand, they would be too far away from the action. So typically that's why So you we... bring them in closer and push them up a bit, basically. So on the centre line and behind the goal, you'll see they often go higher. And the reason why it dips down in the corner is because if we draw a line from the corner flag back to the back row of seating in that corner, we don't want them to go too far away. So that's by bringing them to a certain maximum distance from the pitch, we inevitably get that geometry of the, the wave effect in the stadium. And does that restrict the capacity purely because you don't want to go too far away from the... Um, it's our way of balancing 
how we allocate the seats. So obviously the seating bowls can can get higher and lower, and 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 one of the skills. And, and I have a colleague, uh, you know, Dale, who specialises in in seating bowls, and and the way that he arranges them, the arrangement of the front row to the pitch, and then single tier or multi tier is all part of us shoehorning, if you like, the the desired capacity into the site area so that we get people in the best possible position to to view the pitch. So does that mean that in theory there's a maximum capacity possible for a football game, a football stadium? Um, not not well. I guess you can look at somewhere like the New Camp where they're going to get up to 110,000. Yeah. Yeah. It just means you'll be further away in the upper tier, and that introduces the question of what is a uh, what's a viable seating position. So if you charge a low enough ticket value and you're right at the back of that new upper tier at New Camp, but the fact you're there and you can see Messi on the pitch, but he's you know, very, yeah. very small, is that worth the ticket price? And and so it's the same in theatre design as well, is how far away can people be uh, located before they, they really start to question whether they're getting uh, the value of the live experience. But from a pure architecture and building construction point of view, you could have, you could be as big as you want. It could be, although I think 60,000 seems to be the, su- right. the sweet spot. That seems to be the, the, the point at which um, we can get everybody feeling like they're really intimate yeah, with the pitch. And, and you know, 60,000 is, is still a big stadium, but people who walk into the new Tottenham Stadium often say to us now, this feels really intimate. feels like, yeah. uh, you know, you're close to the action. And I think, I think it's remarkable, sorry to cut him, I think it's remarkable how, I'm not a Spurs fan, I, I went to White Hart Lane, I think a few times, the old one I mean. I think it's remarkable how it doesn't actually feel that much bigger, mm. yet it's got, what, 80% more people in so, it? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, we've gone from about 33, 34,000 up to 62,000. Um, the interesting comparison between the Emirates and Tottenham is that, that, that although the, the seating bowl is pretty much the same capacity, Tottenham has 50% more floor area in it. Right. That, that's one of the kind of differences, I think, between the two projects. We have clubs and bars and lounges going from tunnel clubs all the way up to the Sky Lounge at level nine at Tottenham, mm. whereas typically a stadium would have a lower tier, a club tier, a box tier and an upper tier, so four four levels. And yet, despite having all that floor area in, in the Tottenham Stadium, when you then go into your seat, it feels like it's yeah. really intimate and small. And um, I'm still trying to figure out the magic of what Dale's right. done there. Right. Okay. Okay. What, what do you think is the... So I'm not... It, clearly, I'm not going to expect you to to, to be negative or, or critical critical of other other stadia, but th- there is a difference in a huge way between um, Wembley Stadium and um, and the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And, and I suppose part of me thought I've been to Wembley loads of times. You know, seen seen teams play there, of course, different sports, but mostly football. And I, and I I was under the impression before that the the atmosphere at Wembley has a poor reputation. And that was because people who come to watch England games are different types of fans to people who go and watch club games and support their team. And they're clearly human beings involved in the study make a huge difference. But is there anything sort of, let me try to put this a, a sort of diplomatic way. Are there lessons to be learned from the Wembley Stadium situation that you can apply to, um, to for example, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Yeah, I guess you know Wembley's a national stadium, so it's ninety thousand seats. It's it's the biggest covered stadium, I think. Uh, well, certainly in Europe, um, it's designed to host England games. Uh, you know, Anthony Joshua and a public events, yeah, yeah, yeah. events, concerts. Yeah. Um, also, its funding was driven at the time by the need that it had to be designed to accommodate an athletics track. This is before the Olympics were awarded to Stratford. Yeah. So part of the public funding was on the basis that Wembley was designed that it can have an athletics track 
installed temporarily um, sort of midway up the uh, lower tier. And what that did was it actually, if you see the front row at Wembley, it's got that sort of curve to it, which is really all about being able to accommodate the athletics track. So, which gets to the golden rule of getting the front row of seats as close as possible to the pitch. Mm. And ideally for football, it's a rectangular field and you want them in a, rect- in, a, in a rectangular shape. So is that a point of principle for you then as an architect? If someone's, yeah. if I come to you and say, I've got a few billion, I want a running track and, a, and I want the atmosphere you've generated at Spurs, um, can you do it? Well, then you get into the sort of Olympic stadium scenario where you have retractable seating tiers. And, um, you know, the question about what you, you technically, in, from a technical point of view, we can bring the lower tier in so that it's mm. close to the pitch. But what you can't typically do is deal with the mid-tier and the upper tier, which tend to stay further away. So there's always a debate, and it's it, it, it's quite, it's an interesting one about can a multifunctional stadium generate you know a great atmosphere? I would argue for the Olympic Games, for athletics, the, the atmosphere inside the Olympic Stadium was amazing. It was amazing, e- yeah. Even with half a roof and, you know, an open oval shape. Yeah. But... Um, I'm sure you'll talk to people who've been to rugby or football there and say, well, if I'm in the middle of the upper tier, I'm really some distance away from the pitch. Is it, I mean, everything that went on with West Ham when they moved into that stadium, and that's one of your, that's one of your babies, right? So was it hurtful to read those kind of criticisms and, and complaints by, by people? Well, I think, um, you know, it, the, the reality on the Olympic Stadium, of course, was that when we were designing for the Olympics, there wasn't intended to be a Premier League team in the stadium. So it had mm. a very, it was going to be a 25,000 seat community football and athletics legacy. So that was the basis on which we designed the stadium. Obviously, as the games came along, um, the economic situation changed, change of mayor. They mm. wanted the stadium to be more viable. And of course, for that, you need a Premier League football club. So then we had the transformation project where we extended the roof, we put in the retractable seating. And you worked on that as well? Not personally, but as a company, yeah, we, we, yeah. We, we worked on that second phase. And um, I mean, it's been interesting. I think if you see West Ham, you see the crowds that they're drawing. Um, you know, they've taken advantage of being in that large stadium and, and I think of, of, of building up their fan base. So, um, uh, it, but in terms of if you said to me, what is the perfect atmosphere for football specifically? then clearly you want to get the front row as close as possible, as low as possible, and, and keep the sort of intimacy that I think we've developed in the Tottenham seating mm. bowl. Mm-hmm. And and stadiums, I suppose now, um, particularly the, the Tottenham one, and I suppose the Arsenal one as well to an extent. Um, in fact, not all of them. I'm going to say all of them are... are to a le- greater or lesser extent competing with the high street, aren't they? So you want... The, the, clearly, the idea is to get people in early get them buying things, get them doing things, get them staying there and then delaying how long it takes them to get home. Not not in a, in a you know, deliberate way, but just no. say, hey, there's things for them to do kind a, of thing. A positive way, giving them places that they want to come and gather before yeah. and stay afterwards. Yeah. And, and that's been, a. I think that as I've walked around on the test event and the first game at Tottenham, at Tottenham that's probably the thing that, that struck me the most was people were turning up two to three hours before the match, which is completely counter to most football cultures mm. where they'd be on in their local pub and then the 15 minute yeah. surge before kickoff and even more surprising has been after the final whistle you know i think they had seven and a half thousand fans there two and a half hours after the final whistle right a couple of weeks ago wow and the stewards were having to push them out of the stadium yeah. which of course is the complete opposite normally you're trying to say no please stay Come yeah. and, you know, spend some more buy another, beer. Before, yeah. buy another <laughs> beer before yeah. you go we put the yeah. football so by creating things like the marketplace, you know, with that big long bar with screens that people can sit and have a drink, watch what's going on. But I think even more than that, it's the sort of community aspect of, of people. You know, I think that's what 
gives football fans a special characteristic is that sort of group mentality wanting to be with with their fellow fans singing cheering celebrating commiserating maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think by creating some of these very large open spaces that that Tottenham Stadium is giving them that opportunity and that, so clearly that's a very modern facet of, of, of new stadium design what do you think the future what what, what are the future assets and future features of, of new sports stadia going to be, do you think? What direction is it going in? What, if, if, if one of our listeners who listens to this, I support so-and-so club and I know we've got a new stadium in the offing and your company is involved in it. What kind of stuff are you pushing? Saying, this is what we should be doing. That's what we should be doing. This is, this is the future of this. I think there's a, there's a very interesting balance between the sort of core of the excitement of the live experience. And, you know, 20 years ago, before satellite sport was everywhere, there was a view that when satellite sport came in, people would stop going to a live match because they could watch it in comfort at home. Yeah. But I think what we're seeing is there's still a real demand for live sport, live entertainment. So you know, I think that's surprising, you know, Tom, because I, I often catch myself thinking, if I watch a top sporting event on Sky with 4K HD, 100 different camera angles... It's it's almost sacri- it's almost sacrilegious to say it, but it feels sometimes that I might get a better experience mm. from my sofa because I haven't got to travel there, I haven't got to brave the rain, I haven't got to travel back, I haven't got to risk standing next to someone I don't like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So is that very much in your mind when you're doing this stuff? It is, and so you've got to say, well, what is it that is going to encourage people to still come? So if we take it in reverse order, it's meaning that ticketing is simple and easy, that the travel is comfortable and straightforward, clear information about how to get into the stadium. Tottenham Stadium, we've done away with the full-height turnstiles, so you, you probably saw its glass doors, its half-height turnstiles, yeah. trying to make it a much more welcoming environment. It's cashless as well. Cash, yeah, rather than the prison sort of environment that Stadia yeah. used to have with fences and, and, yeah. and, and you know, the, the bathrooms that used to be sort of sta- you know, prison specifications, stainless steel basins and no mirrors. Now we have tiles, we have mirrors, we have the sort of types of facilities you'd expect if you were in a restaurant or on the high street or... or um, and, and that level of sort of comfort, then also you have um, the technology. So trying to make sure that fans have access to um, Wi-Fi or mobile so that they can get the information they're looking for. And then once you're in the seating bowl, I still think there's a magic about creating an atmosphere around a live event that is what get people out. It mm. gets people out of uh, bed on a rainy day. Mm. I mean, we can put the big screens in, we can have the concert sort of uh, speakers, we can have the lights, the LED lights now mm. at Tottenham, which create all that drama when players come on the pitch. But ultimately, I think there's still something about creating that arena within which people come and just get an excitement about watching an event. And what's the, what's the one bit, I mean... What's the one building you look at or the one stadium that you look at and you go, oh, do you know what? I wish I worked on that. <laughs> well, you've worked on all the best, the best well, ones. We've, so, yeah. been, we've been lucky enough to work on many that have changed the, the, the shape of stadia. I think there are, there are always um, aspects of, um, of other stadia that you, you know, you're, you're constantly looking for. Uh, one of the challenges we have in football stadia in the UK, of course, is licensing. That means that we can't um, have views of the field when you're in the concessions with the bars. And, and that creates a level of restriction that in other countries and for other sports um, where we can be more innovative with um, sort of open balconies or views of the field where mm. you're actually in the in the concourse having some food and drink. Um, you know, you can have fun things like introducing the party decks that some of the NFL stadia do. But mm. I think there's still that balance. And, 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 and I think it's, it's quite a, um, uh, a sort of tense discussion in football about 
how much do you use new technology, new experiences, new environments, as opposed to the game itself? And, and I think that's always and being a more traditional and, yeah. and the traditions. And yeah. I hope with Tottenham, we've 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 managed to blend some of the authenticity and the tradition of the game with obviously the comfort and the technology and the space that that a new stadium can give fans. Okay, final uh, question, Tom. Standing at the opening ceremony of the Olympic Stadium, I presume you were there for that. I was lucky enough to be there for that. The opening game at the Emirates and the opening game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, what was the proudest moment for you? Um, I think for for Arsenal, it was the the first stadium project I'd worked for, um, and that was just quite something. It was the Bergkamp uh, testimonial. Um, There were great players, Cruyff, you know, others on the pitch, and... uh, that was a that was a kind of a sort of rub your eyes moment that that something of that scale could actually open. Olympic Stadium was very much down to uh, Danny Boyle's opening show. That was amazing, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I, I my family had all been giving me a lot of uh, criticism over the years that London's opening ceremony was going to be a national embarrassment. Oh dear! And uh, <laughs> we all remember the red bus in Beijing with yeah. Beckham. And yeah. uh, so when Danny Boyle created that amazing show, mm. uh, I think you know the point at which. Uh, you know, I think it was when 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 they had the video clip with James Bond and the Queen turned around. Yeah. And it was the Queen, and yeah. it was this audible gasp in the stadium. Yeah. Which, that was that was a really special moment. And then Tottenham, I think it was it was hearing that South Stand. You know, you mentioned in the introduction about the megaphone effect. So that single tier stand with the with the soffit with the hard surfaces that projects the sound. When I actually heard that for the first time, that was really quite something. Mm. Uh, if you had to pick a favourite, you wouldn't want to pick one, would you? No, no, that is. You love all your children equally. Your children. Yeah, okay. love both okay. of my children very much. Okay. <laughs> and were you tempted to um, just have a little word to someone standing next to you, saying, "You know, I, uh, I designed this." <laughs> were you tempted to do that? Or are you too well, humble? I, I was. I mean, on the day, I actually was. Um, given an interview on live on Sky Sports, which was uh, even more nerve-wracking. I saw it. He interview. made a terrible Tom Jones pun. <laughs> he did. You, you managed to resist that. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're waiting for that. No, yeah. no, I'm not. I'm not. But then to get people after the game, a few people did come up and say, "Oh, you're the architect on the stadium," and it's quite humbling because I'm representing sixty or seventy architects in our office who've worked on the project. But it means a lot to people, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Like that it means an awful lot to them to have that have that experience. And so it's understandable yeah. they want to thank you for it, you know. And, and that's part of what makes you know these these buildings so special for us and you know seven years is, is a is a lot of work there's a lot of heartache and hard times but uh, it is when you see them open and you see the people you know response to that that's that's mm. what makes it special and um you're not going to tell me what you're working on next is it secret <laughs> uh, there are a few projects that are brewing but uh, nothing that i can perhaps tell okay. you at the moment and uh, what do you think of the studio do you think of the the, the the workmanship of the studio? It's impressed. Good, no, it's a, it's it's one of the more attractive uh, environments I've been in for recording. No. Great. Well, that's a rigging endorsement. <laughs> I shall tell the people who built it. Tom, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you coming in. That was a fascinating insight into into the modern world of football stadiums. Exactly what what we wanted. So, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. This episode of Ramble Meets was sponsored by Bet Three Six Five. This was a Radio Staccano production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.